the most important thing was that if we were going to recommend any of this kind of thing to a client, we needed to have a high, high, high degree of certainty that our recommendations would be valid and that we would be able to help our clients to avoid risk because otherwise you're just inherently putting risk into the portfolio. And so to that degree, we've had to wait and continue to prove out our thinking before we could even start to bring in different types of assets into a portfolio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dashdot Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And boy, am I excited for this episode today. I'm joined by Jason DeSilva and Sean Simpson. Those of you who have listened to the podcast before probably know who they are, but just in case they don't, Jason, do you want to tell people who you are and why, why should they care what you got to say? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Jason, as Goose mentioned, I'm the head of our client success team. So overseeing our team of portfolio strategists and account managers. And really excited to dig into this episode today because we'll be diving into some really interesting concepts where we can add a lot of value to the listeners. Juicy shit, juicy shit, that's for sure. Sean, be hard to, who are you? And why should people care what, you, what you've got it's to say? It's going to be hard to beat, but I'm Sean Simpson. I'm the head of property at Dashdot and also part of the suburb selection committee. So I see the team of uh, property acquisition managers and acquisition analysts who are the ones out there on the ground buying a whole lot of ripper properties for our clients. And I'll just touch on the suburb selection committee piece because not only are you leading the property acquisition teams, but you are, in effect, the intermediary between our technology layer and our property acquisition layer. So you're actually the the guy, used to be me uh, once upon a time, but now it's you. You're the guy that's sitting there going through all of the data, double checking, are the robots telling us the right stuff? Does it make sense? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that's a really important point to um to kind of Touched on there. Do you want to say anything about that before we move yeah, on? Yeah, no, I'd just say that's probably one of the most interesting parts of my job because it's a sort of combination of not only the the data and tech team where we have a, a huge variety of, of people with a variety of skill sets, but then we've also got obviously the tech side of things like you were saying with the, the robots telling us all the juicy spots to buy. So it's a combination of all three of those things where I've got the, the team that's on the ground, the data and tech team looking at a whole lot of interesting studies, and then the army of robots as well. And the combination of all three of those things is, is pretty interesting to try and decipher. So, super interesting. Now, what we're setting up for, dear listener, is a series where we're going to be digging into some really, really interesting topics. And I want to set a big macro context for why we're embarking on this uh, on this kind of series. So, the, ma- the, the what we're actually aiming to be talking about over the next few episodes, possibly three, could be five, could be who knows, is talking about diversification and how it actually relates to building a better portfolio. But there's going to be a few, we're going to go a few layers deeper than that. The big problem that we can see as an organization is that most property investors never achieve success. The single largest cohort of property investors have got zero properties. They're too scared to get started. They sit on the sidelines. They do nothing. And if you're listening to this, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you've been thinking about investing for the last year or so. You're you're listening to every podcast under the sun. You still don't take action because you're too scared. Or perhaps you've got one property and you fit in the 71% of property investors that never get past the first property, which is pretty massive. If you're lucky, you're going to make it to the second property. You'll be in part of the 19% that get the additional percent that get to the second property. What that means is that 90% of active investors, people who actually own properties, never get past the second property. Now, the problem with that, that, some people might say, well, at least you've got properties. But the problem with that is that fundamentally, in order to achieve your goals through property, which everyone I've met has the same goal, which is to achieve financial freedom means different things to different people, but generally the, the goal is the same. To achieve that outcome, and Jason, we've been able to quantify this using our technology, our portfolio planning technology, we've been able to quantify that you typically are going to need about five properties. Now, if you, it doesn't mean as soon as you buy five properties that you spontaneously can retire, but what it typically does mean is that once you get to that point, you've set yourself up in such a way that, you're got, that you don't need to be worried about whether or not you've secured your future. It may mean that your financial freedom is still five or 10 years away or something like that, but it means you're on the path. You've sort of what we call hit safe. Now, as an organization, we have a mission to help 5,000 people achieve financial security by December 20, 2033, which effectively means 5,000 people with five properties. We believe that that is the benchmark for people to get to financial security through real estate, which is a pretty big, which is a pretty big goal. That means 5,000 people that own collectively 25,000 properties. It's pretty big. And this is going to be part of the, the underlying thesis of how we, uh, how we are actually living out this mission because we actually need to try and help people to get over this, these hurdles that are getting people stuck. Because the biggest issue that people face is they, and Jason and Sean, I promise you're not here just for your good looks and I will shut up and let you guys talk in a minute. 
But the pro- the biggest problem is that most property investors get stuck. And one of the things that we've worked out is that performance is not enough. In fact, the single most important thing that we can help people with is to build a portfolio that actually gets them to their goals. And to that degree, the idea of not getting stuck is actually more important than performance, which is pretty wild, right? And just if you think about the performance context, right, if you just think that the the single most important thing is to get the best performing property, well, necessarily, there must be a number one best performing property and a number two second best performing property and the third best performing property all the way down to there's about 600,000 property transactions in a year, all the way down to the 600,000th uh, best performing property, which would be terrible, right? And you're, if you only focus on performance, you're going to fit somewhere on that spectrum, which means necessarily you might may or may not be getting to where you need to get to. But there's another way we can think about this. And the way we can think about this is how do we design property portfolios that are based on an individual set of circumstances designed to get them to their individual set of goals, in ideally in their preferred timeline, and what does that mean? And it may actually mean that it's not so much about performance, it's about asset, asset selection, which is pretty interesting. So we're going, what we're going to be talking about is modern portfolio theory. We're going to be talking about diversification in asset types. We're going to be talking about um, apartments. We're going to be talking about building plans. We're going to be talking about where do capital city markets fit into this. And for people that have been listening to this podcast for the last, whatever, four years, or people that are familiar with Dashdot, you probably know that primarily we've been investing in, in houses, primarily, not only because we bought apartment blocks and duplexes and stuff like that, but primarily houses. And over the last, you know, for nearly five years, we've primarily bought in uh, regional markets, but also we have been buying in capitals, capitals such as Adelaide and Perth and a few, a few other places as well, so we're not anti-capital. But what we're approaching right now is a change, a shift in the dialogue around how people invest, which is a pretty major thing. Because fundamentally, most people think that you just buy houses and if you just accumulate enough houses, you'll get to your goal. And what we're actually going to posit in these next few episodes is that there's a new and better way of doing it. And that better way can be backed up by robust data, research, logic, science, and technology. So I'm super excited to get into this. Jason, Shaw, do either of you guys have anything you want to say on any of that? I'd just say really quickly that I think it's it's a, like, it's a really exciting change for start, but I think you hit the nail on the head why a lot of people get stuck at one and even two, because it's a very, very different approach um, to not just to get to five, but to get to a goal rather than just to buy a property or to buy one property or two property or follow the shiny thing, which I think uh, not just not just investors, but even the industry itself is quite often focused on like how to make a million dollars with granny flats or like how to do small developments and it's always it's always the input rather than than the output that people are looking at that they're chasing their shiny shiny um shiny outcome so yeah i think it's a really really exciting exciting change and i think it's it's very positive to get people through to the goal because a lot of people can quite often yeah following those shiny objects it's sort of like going to the doctor and them telling you that Panadol is the best medicine before you even sat down and told them told them what's going on. You, you sort of never really know whether that's the solution until you find out what the situation is. So I think it's a really exciting move. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll, I'll just play on that for a little bit as well because what you've pointed out there is super important, right? And one of the things that we've always stood for is to be strategy and agnostic. And what we mean by that is that developments can work, granny flats can work, apartments can work, it all can work. The way you need to take think about this is from a principles-based approach. And I was actually in a meeting just earlier today with um, uh, with the, the the technology team. We were, to- we were talking about something. And one of the, the interesting things that um, that came up is we were talking about uh, we were talking about houses. And I, I, I reminded them, I was like, people don't want a house. Like when people think about investing, they're not they, they don't want a house. They want the thing that the portfolio yeah, they want, they want an outcome, which is the outcomes not outcomes they want the outcome. assets. I think it's a really important differentiation that a lot of people don't make. You're after an, you're after an outcome, uh, not an asset, and then I guess that's going to lean pretty well into our sort of theory of constraints and, and modern portfolio theory. You're always aiming to solve a problem with investing, which is why that should determine your asset selection, not the other way around. Love that. Jason, you got anything you want to throw into this? Yeah, 100%. So I think what, everything that we've mentioned and what Sean's mentioned is is completely valid. And uh, even what you mentioned as well, because you're buying that one, that number one property, that might not be the right property for everyone. And that even though that property might be the right from an investing perspective and have all the fundamentals, that fundamental property might not solve what that client's trying to achieve. And that's largely, I think, one of the main reasons that a lot of investors get stuck on that one and two properties because they look for a very specific property without really considering what that property is going to deliver them and how that's going to help them navigate through 
um, building out their portfolio to get to that base that they eventually need to get to their outcomes. It's kind of like a flow-on effect in that sense as well. Yeah, totally. It's a different way of thinking about it, um, which is why I think it's um, worthwhile that we introduce the concept of modern portfolio theory, which probably needs a slightly snappier name, but hey, we didn't name it. We didn't, we didn't name the theory. So let me talk to you about modern portfolio theory because I'd love for us to kind of riff on this for a little bit. Because as, as I mentioned just a second ago, a lot of people think about building a property portfolio and they think that the game is buy houses, right? So I have one house and then I have another house and then I have another house and eventually I'll have several houses. And if I have several houses or apartments or whatever the case may be, properties, then that equals the outcome. Modern portfolio theory, though, uh, takes a sort of different approach. And the good thing about the cool thing about modern portfolio theory is it's been around since the 1950s. So Harry Markowitz came up with, the mo- with modern portfolio theory. I'm going to read a definition. It's a financial theory that focuses on how investors can construct portfolios to maximize expected return based on a given level of market risk. And there's a few key things that, um, that make it up. So there's a risk and return relationship, which is really, really important. And Modern portfolio theory states that investment returns are tied to risk. Now, that's, that is kind of true, but not necessarily absolutely true. Um, and it also talks about the, the relationship between risk and return and, and an optimal yield curve. talks about diversifications. One of the key strategies of modern portfolio theory is diversification, which is something we're going to be laboring on over, the, over this and, and subsequent episodes. By investing in a variety of assets, or in this case, property subtypes that respond differently to the same economic events, investors can reduce their portfolio's overall risk I'm going to come back to the risk piece because this is a really, really, really key key feature of modern portfolio theory. And there's a thing called the efficient frontier. Now, the efficient frontier frontier is a concept that involves creating an optimal portfolio, providing the maximum possible expected return for a given level of risk. Portfolios that lie below the efficient frontier are suboptimal because they do not provide enough return for the level of risk they carry. That's the that's the overall. They're the kind of three core parts of modern modern portfolio theory. Now, a lot of people think about risk and they think about capital risk. They think, okay, so risk means my chance of losing money. But that's not the only risk. In fact, the biggest risk is that you never actually get the outcome that you want. An opportunity. Like imagine if you in Yeah. Imagine if you invested for 30 years, right, with this vision that your investments were going to deliver you this life that you always wanted. And then you never got there, and then all of a sudden you've you've wasted thirty years of investing, and you might never get to it. That's the that's the biggest risk of all. That is the that is the largest risk. And I think in the context that we're approaching it from here, yes, of course, there's capital risk and all these other kind of factors, and you know you want to make sure that you're not overexposed into um, you know more volatile markets, and absolutely. But this idea that you want to create a portfolio that is optimally diversified in a way that has a combination of different assets or asset types, in this case specifically related to property, property subtypes or different strategies, that create an efficient frontier, which is the optimal ret- optimal risk return profile for your portfolio to get you to your goal. Another way of putting that is the optimal combination of assets to get you to your goal in the fastest possible way with the least amount of risk. That's the, that's the simplest way of putting it. And so, um, before we kind of dive into um, some of these uh, other other elements around di- uh, diversification and risk and stuff like that, do you guys have any commentary on on modern portfolio theory and your thoughts on that as it relates to real estate? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I just finished a financial planning degree and learned a lot about modern portfolio theory, but more from like an nice. equity based perspective. Thinking about it, in the sense of property is something that I really haven't seen outside of Dashdot. So, really excited to see how we can build up build out these portfolios for people and how listeners can also think about scaling their portfolios in this way to help navigate through uh, these constraints they face as well. But by the way, I've never heard anyone else talk about it in a real estate context either. And the way that I came across it is because I was reading um, loads of like really, really heavy, like technical textbooks on how you build like um, quantitative trading strategies for hedge hedge funds, right? So I was reading all these like machine learning for quantitative hedge fund asset analysis textbooks and yeah. stuff it was very very heavy reading but it was pretty cool and like one of the reasons that most well let me rephrase that most people don't even know about it or think about it this is why most people don't talk about it but the but one of the reasons people might think that it might not relate to real estate is and it typically relates to other types of securities is because part of what is required is diversification now if you only own one property 
it's very hard for that to be diversified, <laughs> right? Now, given that most property investors only get one property, right? If you're lucky, you'll get to two. Two is maximally only 50% diversified, right? Whereas if you're buying securities that may only, securities being shares or whatever, bonds or whatever, whatever else you want to use, they may only cost a couple of bucks, right? And so it's, if you've got a few hundred dollars, it's easy to become diversified on a risk return profile basis. And so one of the things that I want to bring into this conversation is this um, this idea as well around more doors equals less risk, subject to a whole bunch of other things, right? And so if you can actually create a portfolio that has a higher number of properties, you're more likely that you're going to find the optimal yield curve. But before we go into that, uh, Sean, what do you think? No, I, I think it's really interesting as well, but just to sort of dumb it down, because I know we're going to get into some really, really heavy duty economic terms in here like for, for people wondering what we're talking about with the risk return um in property because i know it hasn't been said in property you can think of it in really wild terms where at one end of the spectrum you might buy like a a dance studio in humpty do in northern territory or something that's like a 40 percent yield and it might have a whole carry a whole lot of inherent risk and then go all the way up the other end of the risk return uh where you're buying something central capital capital city you're getting absolutely no yield but you know there's always going to be very, very strong demand for that. So that's the individual asset. And then we're obviously talking about the combination of assets along that curve um, to create the optimal outcome in property. Yeah, 100%. And so, I, I mean, I, I've applied this in my own thinking for my own portfolio. So, for example, uh, we bought a property in Port Augusta. Mm. Um, that's getting close to the, to the, to the one end of the scale. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, right? And we bought this property for- Jace, Jace has one too, down there. Well. Yeah, yeah. So, but, 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 looking at that now, would I recommend that a first-time investor goes and invests in a place like Port Augusta? No, I wouldn't, because the 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 risk return profile for that suburb is it's pretty high. You'd put it in a high risk category, not because it's a dangerous move, but just because the volatility is higher. Right? It's a market timing play. So you want to sort of make sure you get in and get out at the right time and, you know, you're, you're sort of trading the market a little bit and it's a bit more active, it's a little bit more sophisticated versus something like a set and forget, you know, you know the middle of it. it could, we, we talk about blue chip type stuff, but also um, semi, semi-metro is also just as stable as uh, like, you know, sort of what people would more consider blue chip in a ring, 5Ks from the CBD type stuff. I mean, if you bought in a ring for lack of a better term in Bendigo, you're also going to have a pretty low, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, optimally low risk profile on, on that type of asset. Port Augusta though, for example, that's that asset was like, I think we bought it for $180,000, right? So cheapest chips, right? And we bought it knowing the volatility in the market, understanding the risk profile associated with it, but the proportional amount of our portfolio that was associated with that risk was very, very low. And, and we could see that there was a, a, optimal return profile that may be available to that. And so that is a higher risk asset in our portfolio, but we have other properties that are just like, okay, we'll probably hold them for the next 30 years, right? So, so and there's a there's a big difference between those two. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to get in there on that, Sean? No. Okay. So the relevance to real, real estate investing is really, really important. So, And I think modern portfolio theory as a concept is something that I just encourage it. I really want to bring into the vernacular because what we're talking about here is um, diversifying across different types of real estate. Now, again, traditionally, we've spoken about um, you know houses. Now, if we go, go back all the way to the start of Dashdot, you know, when we started Dashdot, we we had some theories around how we thought we could help our clients get better returns. And then people started giving us money and saying, okay, cool, go and do it then. And I freaked out. I was like, holy shit, what if we accidentally get this wrong? What if we accidentally get it wrong? And so we've invested a significant amount of time and money and effort over the last four, nearly five years now in trying to get it right. Now, we were very deliberate in that we wanted to make sure we could get it get things right before we would expose our clients to the level of risk. And so necessarily we said, okay, we're not going to think about commercial. We're not like we're we're just gonna we're gonna focus on one vertical, right? Which was houses, residential real estate houses, not units, not townhouses, not commercial, not dance studios in Humpty Doo, not uh, caravan parks, not any of these other things. Not because they don't work, but because the most important thing was that if we were going to recommend any of this kind of thing to a client, we needed to have a high, high, high degree of certainty that our recommendations would be valid and that we would be able to help our clients to avoid risk because otherwise you're just inherently putting risk into the portfolio. And so 
to that degree, we've had to wait and continue to prove out our thinking before we could even start to bring in different types of assets in, into, into a portfolio. But the time is here and the time is now. And the diversification is across different types. So yes, you've got residential, commercial, and industrial. But then you've also, as I mentioned, you've got uh, residential where you can build a granny flat on it. You've got residential that you can do a subdivision on. You've got uh, residential houses, residential, uh, residential units, residential townhouses, all of this kind of stuff. And they each have different types of characteristics. And they appeal to different parts of the market, which provides diversification in another way as well. That actually gives you economic diversification because different assets perform differently under different asset, uh, different economic circumstances, which is super interesting as well. So for example, um, depending on uh, what interest rates are doing, different assets perform in different ways. And depending on what migration is doing, if different assets are going to perform in different ways. And so we then get to create, start thinking about, okay, how do we expose ourselves to all of the variety? So we have a hedged portfolio. So the, the concept of having a, the concept of a hedge fund, right? And hedge funds are typically multi-billion dollar, you know, funds. The idea of a hedge fund is that they have assets which balance each other against, out to balance the risk. And what we're actually effectively talking about here is helping individuals build their own hedge fund for real estate. In fact, I was being uh, I was being interviewed for uh, for a, a newspaper article recently, and I was explaining what we did. I was just explaining what we did, and the reporter said, "So, if I hear this right, you're effectively helping people to build their own real estate investment funds for themselves directly." And I was like, "Yeah, that's basically it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty cool way of thinking about it." So, but then also as we start to think about this idea of not getting stuck and how we can select the right types of assets to solve for the primary risk of never achieving your outcomes, you then also necessarily create the opportunity to have more properties. Because if you don't get stuck, what, do you, what can you do? Buy more properties. Which then allows you to then diversify geographically. Because if you just have all your eggs in one basket, let's say you bought 10 properties in, I don't know, Bankstown, right? And let's say, let's say you bought 10 properties in Bankstown and Bankstown had the boom of the year. Would that be good? All 10 properties went up. Great. But that's actually not good because then if it goes down, right, all 10 properties are going down. So geographic diversification is also really, really important as well. Um, and this is actually what's going to help people to generate risk-adjusted returns. So do we have any? Um, do you guys have any kind of uh, thoughts on on any of those points that I've just made there? I just chuck one thing in with the the Bankstown example. Like it's a good, it's another great example with the the shiny things mentality where people can read books where there's somebody that's made a huge amount of money doing one strategy in one place at one time. And a lot of the times that, that book might have been written or the success might have been had 20 years ago. Like that person might have built all these spec homes in Bankstown and made six million dollars. And it, does that mean for this first time investor that's picked up the book they should go and build spec homes in Bankstown? It's probably a, a definite no. So it's a good example as well how strategies aren't you, you don't want the input to determine your output you definitely want the output to determine the input which is why following the strategies is not necessarily the the right way unless you've you've figured that out by your own personal circumstances yeah i really like that outcomes not assets yeah. i think is a great i actually stole that from I steve mcknight so i won't claim that I did hear him say that and I thought it resonated very, very much because once, once you take it back, um, and this is again with the personal circumstances to the to the theory of constraints, there's normally always something that somebody's after in their portfolio or something that's holding them back from progressing their goal. It might be access to credit, might be access to capital, might be access to cash flow. But say you're somebody that that, that is, you know, needs capital. You're early on in your, your portfolio, you need capital and you read this book that says granny flats are the way to go. Should you spend 200 grand of, of extra cash on your first property putting a, a granny flat on? Probably not because you're not solving for the outcome that is your constraint in your portfolio. So it's just another good example why I think that that mentality is really, really important that you're after the the outcome, not necessarily the strategy or the location or the hotspot or the asset or, or whatever the, the step forward is. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And Jason, I'm going to throw it to you in a second because- the idea of constraints, like the theory of constraints is really, really critical. And so, you know, we, we're bouncing around a lot of theories here, modern portfolio theory, the theory of constraints. But I think it's essential. I think it's essential to break free from the, um, the you know, the unsophisticated uh, mentality of like, just buy houses because that ain't going to get anywhere. Buying houses should be the last thing you do after you've worked out 
what the what the right strategy needs to be, right? And the right strategy needs to also really deeply consider the theory of constraints. Now, the theory the theory of constraints is pretty simple. It's effectively uh, what what part of any system is causing the rest of the system to perform suboptimally. I.e., where's the bottleneck? It's the simplest way of thinking about it. Where's the bottleneck? And in a portfolio, there's only three places you can get a bottleneck. Really, two if you really want to cook it down. But the, the simplest way of thinking about it is capital. Have you got enough? Have you got enough equity or cash to be able to invest in assets? There's debt. I.e., can you get enough? Can you get enough debt to be able to leverage the capital to go and buy the assets you want? And then there's cash flow, which relates to debt um, because um, your cash flow. That comes from the portfolio of you, by the way. And so the modern portfolio theory extends beyond real estate. It extends to also you as an individual, right? And so, for example, if you're a business owner, maybe your business forms part of your overall portfolio, and maybe that's a high risk, high return, and maybe you need to use real estate to offset some of the risk, right? So you get to think, this this is why operating from a place of principles and theories is so much more powerful than operating from a place of tactics, like let's go buy properties and put granny flights on them. Because the the cash flow then is also going to facilitate your capability to support debt from a from a uh, from a capital expense perspective as well as an access perspective. And that's why we have the three in there, right? Because because realistically, you might be able to get debt, but if it's going to be ne- if you're going to buy an asset that's going to be negatively cash flow or negative cash flow by let's say 20, 30, 40, 50 grand a year, if you don't have the cash flow side of that kind of triangle of of things you need to be able to support that, then you will still be stuck. Which is why there's the three, right? So you've got access to capital, access to debt, and access to cash flow. You need all three to be able to support ongoing portfolio expansion. And ongoing portfolio expansion is ultimately the outcome that we want. That's the, that's effectively what we're trying to trying to achieve, so that everyone can achieve their goals. And so, with that context in mind, uh, Jason, how do people think? Like, let's start shifting this towards towards a plan, right? Because the first step here is to get a plan. The first step isn't like, where's the latest hotspot or tell me what type of property I should buy. You know, the first step is, what does my portfolio need to look like, act like, think like, smell like, perform like? Where do I start? So, do you want to talk about the relationship between um, the theory of constraints and modern portfolio theory as it relates to portfolio design in the way that we do it with our portfolio growth plans. Yeah, 100%. I just want to really share like an interesting example that came up as well. So we had a client that came on board with us. He had the, the capital and the borrowing capacity to move forward with two purchases at once. He was really keen to do that. Uh, and looking at this whole situation, if we had just gone ahead and just bought those two properties, we would have executed on what he asked for, but we wouldn't have seen they didn't have the savings rate and the buffers and the cash flow to be able to hold on to those properties. So we actually would have put this client into a negative situation by by actually not looking at his situation holistically, assessing all of his constraints and mapping out those purchases. So it's that's one of the reasons that it's super important to consider this, especially because property is not a very liquid asset class. And once you make that decision, it is quite a difficult decision to revert. So being able to go at it with having a clear plan first on assessing your whole situation, looking at all the constraints that you are going to overcome on your journey and thinking logically about where those properties need to be purchased, but also what those specific properties are and what strategies we need to implement to allow someone to continue moving forward. Uh, so I think- Dude, that's, that's so good. That is such a, that's a great example. So I'm just going to labor that point for a minute because it's such a good example. So this client had the capital. They had the borrowing capacity. So they're able, they've got the money and they can get the debt. But if we don't select the right types of assets, then the cash flow might not be able to be supported. So you can end up going and buying properties and all of a sudden bankrupt, bankrupting someone or at least putting them, putting them in a really shitty position. Maybe not bankrupting this, maybe it's a little extreme, but you get the idea. Right? Imagine if you just weren't thinking about it, you didn't have a plan, you weren't clearly looking at the optics, you go and execute, yay, I've got two more properties, woohoo, look at me, numbers going up, you know, check mark, notches on the belt, marks on the scoreboard, but then all of a sudden you put yourself in a really, really bad position. Now, the thinking around that then becomes, uh, is it actually the right time for that person to buy just as they can? Or secondarily, what types of assets might support the ongoing you know, proliferation of the portfolio. So I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah, 100%. So in that client situation, for example, given that we had a cash flow constraint, one of the things we could have considered is optimizing for properties that potentially have higher yield. Um, 
to be able to accommodate for that and allow that client to still purchase the two properties at the frequency that they were after, but also having the cash flow buffers on hand to be able to support that. Um, there's a few other ways you can consider it as well, whether it's potentially buying lower price properties. So this is where the portfolio plan is really use useful because we can model all these types of scenarios and show a client firsthand, hey, based on your circumstances, this is why we believe this is the best way forward and kind of model that scenario out over 30 years. And from there, that becomes a roadmap that will work together on executing as opposed to just executing without really having that plan um, on the back end and potentially shooting yourself in the foot as you try to uh, scale out your portfolio. And this is also where geographic diversification comes into it really, in a really, really big way. So most investors still believe you need to invest in your own backyard, believe it or not. Now, for us on the inside, Dashdot, if you listen to this, Dashdot Insider, you're partly on the inside as well. You may already know and we already know that you don't need to do that. In fact, we're buying properties. We've bought properties in, I think, 180 different suburbs in six states uh, so far, um, over 1,000 properties now. Oh, how do you do yet? Not happy to do yet. <laughs> we haven't found, we haven't we haven't been able to validate the risk return profile to be able to satisfactorily buy a dense studio. It's, it's funny though because it's a good example. I bet for somebody out there, for their personal circumstances, a caravan park in Humpty Doo might be the optimal risk return ratio. Like it's it's funny to laugh about, but this is why it's so important what we're talking about because for somebody out there, that is the asset that's going to get them to their goals quickest. And this is why we're having this conversation because. We, we want to help people like that get to their goals as quick as possible, not just people that might fit a certain strategy or something that we can we can execute on. So it's, as much as it is funny, it's it's important. You know, it's it's super important. And like thinking about it like that is critical, right? Because even if you think like say, obviously we, we've developed the capability to forecast uh, the market 15 months into the future. So we can see when it's going to go up and when it's going to go down and therefore we can buy, hold, sell recommendations and whatever. And so one would naturally assume that um, a declining market would be bad, but for the right type of buyer, a declining market might actually be the exact thing they're looking for in their portfolio mix where they could buy on a downswing for a variety of different reasons that might make that make sense. And so there's almost no wrong asset there's no let me rephrase it there's no such thing as a bad asset asset there's only bad asset selection right and so there's like a, a dance studio in hump to do perfect beautiful if that's the right thing for your portfolio a 10 million dollar um mansion in turak beautiful perfect for someone but not necessarily for you and so the geographic, I want to touch back on the geographic diversification thing here as well, because in this example that Jason gave, so if someone is, let's say someone lives in Newcastle, and I don't know what the median house price is in Newcastle, and, and Sean, maybe you know, maybe you don't. Bucks in a, in a about, a, ring. Yeah. about a million bucks. Yeah, cool. Right, so let's say it's 700 to a million, depending on where you're buying around, around Newcastle. If someone's in Newcastle and they're going, right, I want to build a property portfolio, and they've got enough money to go and buy a $700,000 or a million dollar property, let's say, and um, they go, okay, I've got the money, I've got the capital, I've got the debt, let's go buy, right? Technically, they can go buy a house. But if that person is in the same circumstances as the, the client we just mentioned, maybe they can't afford the negative cash flow. Maybe that puts them in a really bad position. And then if you were to say, yeah, just buy cheaper properties, they might be like, but there aren't any cheaper properties. So I'm only buying what I can. Well, this is, where diverse, this is where geographic diversification comes into play. Because not only can you select... Uh, good assets at lower prices and arbitrage geographically in different markets, you also expose yourself to a wider variety of asset types. So for example, I was talking to a um, I was talking to a real estate agent in uh, Yass, and he was saying that uh, he, there's a bunch of property investors that he knows um, that want to buy properties, but they don't have the the enough to be able to afford the, the median house price in Yass unless they were to buy cheap properties in that area, which quite frankly was shit. To the degree the real estate agent wouldn't even sell them to these guys because he hit these like these are big bad assets for them that it wouldn't make sense, and so then you're faced in a situation that if you can't break free from your geography, you're going to seriously impede your portfolio's capability to achieve its greatest potential, and so then not only do we need to identify the constraints, we then need to be able to geographically identify where we might find the right optimal to asset types based on the portfolio's needs. Because another way to think about this as well is if you've got to accumulate the capital side of the equation, you may let's say let's say you're let's say you've got plenty of income, right? 
income is not a concern and you've got plenty of debt, right? So you've sold for the cash flow side, you've got plenty of money coming in because remember, cash flow doesn't just mean from your assets, it also means from your business, your work, whatever, the, the portfolio of you, where's the money coming from? Where's the cash coming from? Then you, and let's say you've got plenty of debt, fantastic. Um, and you need to accumulate more capital faster, for example. Let's say you need to accumulate capital side. Well, maybe you're in a market that is a low growth, high yield market. Maybe that's where you live. And maybe actually what you need to do is find the right market that isn't optimized for yield, but it's optimized for growth. And so potentially the yield is going to be 4%. I mean, shit could be 3%. We've never bought anything less than 4%, I don't think, or 4.5% ever. Uh, but this is not to say that we couldn't. And I'll just labor that point as well, by the way. The only re- we haven't done it, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong to do it. It just means that to date, we haven't seen the right way to put that in someone's portfolio to maximize their capability to achieve their goals. Now, to the point we made a second second ago, there's nothing wrong with 1% or 2% yielding properties for a certain point in the portfolio. We'll talk about that in a, in a couple of episodes when we start talking about where capital city markets fit into it. But by opening up yourself to geographic diversification, not only do you open yourself up to a wide variety of asset types, you also diversify your economic risk. One of the studies we did, um, geez, it must have been like two years ago now, we um, we tried to do a, a, a study on the impact of inf- infrastructure projects on property markets. We thought, okay, this is going to be an easy one. This will be a, lot, a nice little hole in one. Obviously, infrastructure projects uh, increase property markets. Yeah, of course. So we thought we'll just do a nice, easy study. We'll put together a white paper. We'll publish it. We'll look smart. It'll be great. And then, we did this, then we did this study and we discovered that sometimes – some infrastructure projects affect property markets in some ways, right? And, 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 but not all the time and with really low correlation. Except what we actually then found was that specific types of infrastructure projects affected specific types of economically diversified areas in different ways. So, for example, if it was a white-collar area like, you know, inner ring Sydney, entertainment projects mattered more than, say, civil construction projects in terms of property prices. And so then you start to realize that you have these economically diversified or interest-based diversified, so farming, agriculture, professional services, um, things that fluctuate more on oil prices or wheat prices or whatever. And so then you've got these economic diversification as well. And so, Sean, I'd love to get um, your hot take on how you think about um, geographical diversification in the portfolio. I think the really cool one from that study as well that'll blow a lot of people's minds is that we found like, for example, a, ho- a creation of a new hospital, which everyone's like, oh, you know, that's easy, easy hole in one. Like you said, that's going to increase prices. And we actually found one area where it did absolutely nothing and another area where there was an extreme increase in prices. I'm not going to give away all the secret sauce about how you sort of can, can identify those things, but it was very interesting where the general market will just take an opinion that this is what happens in real estate. And quite often, it's not founded in any any kind of data or, or investigation into it, which is why we really pride ourselves in, in trying to break down some of these assumptions. Um, but I think on the, the geographic diversification argument, it's a, probably a good time to break down a bit of a myth, which I think has, has sort of popped up a lot more in the last couple of years, that there's the Australian property market, which happened a lot during COVID because it was the Australian property market. It was sort of like a, a nationally, you know, economic sort of, I uh, don't even know what to call it, big bowl where absolutely everything went up. It had a pull on everywhere in Australia, which can make you think that houses do the same thing everywhere. Whereas in a normal in, in normal times in Australia, COVID being the exception, there's thousands of individual markets and each of those markets can have effects on the street level. It can have effects on the, the town level, the LGA level, the state level and the national level. And each of those individual areas might be affected by different weightings by different things. There might be some rural area where a singular LGA-based project will have a huge effect. Like to make to break down simply might be like if you're way out at, let's say, Broken Hill and they're going to open a, a billion-dollar mine, that's going to have a huge effect. Whereas something in Sydney might have a far greater effect from like a state-based policy or something like that. I'm just pulling random examples out of the air. But different areas can be a fate, can be affected by different weightings from different levels of changes. So there's a lot more a lot more depth that needs to be considered in terms of portfolio risk with location selection than just like you said, hey, we need a house. This is where I live in the backyard. Maybe this is the best thing for us. There's a, a lot of consideration as to your risk and exposure based on yeah, all those intricate little bits and pieces that can affect an area's prices. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it's even, not just even projects, it's also in things like international trade, right? Because, for example, if uh, 
if there's an area that is um, e- economically tied to exports, whether that be uh, whether it be uh, mining, but everyone thinks mining towns, yeah, but there's whole economies that are attached to mining, right? Massive economies, um, not just like little towns next to a big open pit, right? There's heaps of there's also things like farming. So if an area is a, a massive food bowl, and it could be, you know, there's big, uh, you know, kind of orchard regions in Australia, yeah, but there's orange. a big farming here where I am at the moment. It's a good one for wine exports. I remember wine exports trailing off in Australia. All of a sudden, an orange has a lot of wineries. It wasn't the singular driver for that economy, but it was a, a very good example where thinking a little bit further into these things can can really show some interesting results. Exactly. And also even things like um, foreign exchange rates. So... I know that there are some economies that when the US dollar goes uh, down, up, when the US dollar goes up, then trade goes down. Um, no, sorry, when the US dollar goes down, then, then exports go down. And those, are, those markets are significantly affected as well. And so geographic diversification isn't just about um, have I spread myself out. It's are they both geographically uncorrelated, but also economically uncorrelated. Now it's pretty hard to do, right? And so the simplest, simplest way to do this is to try and get more doors, right? And so I don't want to start trying to create some kind of ego frenzy of like who's got the most amount of properties because I actually think that that is a really toxic part of the um, property investment space. Look at me, I've got twenty two and. I'm awesome and everybody else sucks. I don't think that's a healthy part of the narrative for, for property investors. But um, but from a context of like if you can think about how to diversify your risk in an optimized way, then that can actually be really, really good. And so, you know, that that necessarily um, indicates that you can kind of buy, start buying heaps of different stuff in heaps of different places and start to balance that risk out in a more sophisticated way. Um Cool. So, Jason, before we kind of, I know we just jumped into kind of diversification um, uh, a fair bit there, but did you want to talk about the about portfolio planning at all a little bit, a little bit more than this? Because I think one of the hardest things around this is like, okay, so what we're talking about effectively is how to design a portfolio that's going to achieve my goals. But like, most people don't even really know where to start. So, you want to talk, kind of talk about like the fundamentals of developing a plan, because then once you've got the plan, then you can work out the portfolio that's going to execute the plan. Yeah, 100%. So I think the first thing with creating any plan is to have a, a clear, a clearly defined goal. So at Dashdog, we use an interesting formula, which is called the minimum viable freedom uh, formula that we've developed uh, in-house. And it's a really interesting way to work out a starting point for a goal. And obviously, you can work um, work from there once you have achieved that goal as well. So the way that it's calculated is essentially working out what your current living expenses are uh, and then subtracting that from any work-related expenses because once you achieve your goal, those expenses will no longer be uh, calculated in, in how much you need to be able to live that life that you're trying to achieve. Uh, then timesing that by the annual inflation rate, raise the power of how long you want to, how long you want to allocate towards achieving that goal. So, I've actually done like an interesting example. We actually have a cool calculator. I think that you shared a while back. It might be interesting to include uh, in the show notes. Yeah, let's put yeah, let's put the MVF calculator in yeah. the show notes. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Could you remember to ping that to um uh, the relevant people? Done and do. So actually, I've got an interesting example here where if you've got a hundred thousand dollars of living expenses uh, and you uh, twenty thousand dollars of that is work expenses, uh, assuming the inflation rate's three percent, you're allocating ten years to get to that goal. Uh, the initial cash flow goal that you'd be targeting would be one hundred and seven thousand five hundred and thirteen dollars. And that would be the goal of amount that you would need to be able to achieve in that 10-year period uh, to be able to have that that income. And once we have that goal, we can work backwards and figure out what the portfolio uh, needs to look like in order to achieve that goal, obviously taking into account the numerous amounts of uh, constraints as well. So having the portfolio planning tool allows us to take into account those constraints and all those challenges. Um, with someone that doesn't have one, it could be quite challenging because you're looking at things like savings rates, risk profile, timeline to actually get to the goal, setting assumptions for how those properties are likely to perform and also updating it on a regular basis to make sure you are tracking towards that goal. And having the tool is also helpful because we can we can pivot as strategies need to pivot. So for example, if there's a change in strategy or we've identified a new way to help clients achieve their goals, we can go back and update the client's plan in terms of navigating through that, uh, which is super interesting as opposed to just having a linear goal, which which is likely to be achieved unless you're constantly reiterating that and looking at how each property that you're purchasing is getting you closer to your goals. So I think it's first really important to have that goal and then working backwards 
and also being nimble as we've discussed with both asset selection um, and location selection as well to be able to work out what the most optimal way is to get to your goal as opposed to just relying on like a three houses or five houses or whatever like an arbitrary target would be yeah i love that right because what we're actually talking about here is three really distinct parts of building an effective portfolio so in the first instance you've got the planning phase okay so where do i want to get to what does my life look like now what you described there with the minimum viable freedom formula was like step one okay let's let's get to a point where i can cover my current life right not some luxury life where i've got you know 17 servants carrying me around on cushions or something like that right but like if you just had your current life today with no work and you suddenly had all your time back, what would that look like? And that's where you get your current living expenses minus your work-related expenses. Get that. That's kind of step one. And then you can have then you can have a kind of like a desired life goal. So there's minimum viable freedom and then there's kind of a desired life. They're two different things. But step one is to get free, to get all your time back. So you get all your time back, then you rock it. Now, that then can help to define what the plan needs to look like. And then what then we can start to think about what are the optimal combination of assets to fit that plan to get to that goal. Perfect. That's where modern portfolio theory applies. That's where the theory of constraints applies. Let's get that locked down. Okay, let's build a plan, a picture of what we think that's going to look like. Necessarily, all forecasts are only as good as the inputs and only as good as the current known, best known information. But you can plan it and go, okay, we can see a clear pathway, a clear roadmap to get there. Then, from the property acquisition side, you then get to go and go, okay, well, based on the plan and the constraints and the and a modern portfolio theory, what is the optimal location and what are the optimal asset types in those different locations, all of that kind of stuff, geographically and um, economically, we're talking prices, we're talking if you're buying apartments, what how what are, how do strata fees impact um, the apartments and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. How does that asset actually meet the plan? So then there's that step two, so plan, acquisition, and then step three is optimization. Optimization is like, okay, we've got a plan, but like shit changes. <laughs> like, I don't know about anybody else, but my life's changing all the freaking time, right? And so, so if your environment changes, you need to change to your environment. In fact, Charles Darwin said it's not the it's not the fittest of the it's not the smartest or the fittest of the species that survives. It's the most adaptable, right? And this also goes to your portfolio because if you've got a mindset where it's like I only buy within ten kilometers of the Sydney CBD, right? then your portfolio is going to be at the behest of market conditions continuously and you will never be in control. You're just going to be flailing around in the winds of circumstance without any mastery over what you're actually, where you're actually going. However, if you've got the tools and the capabilities in the team to actually be able to continuously optimize and go, okay, how is this performing? And what can we see on the horizon? And do we need to steer away from these rocks? And by the way, here's uh, elevated understanding of the market which may actually change the strategy. Should we go back and should we re-optimize this and find a better way? That actually is critical because without that, you've got this kind of, you set a compass bearing at, at step one without ever understanding what's off in the distance and you could end up running into some rocks that you didn't know were there along the way. And so having that part of, part of it in there is, um, is, is uh, critically important. So I love that. Sean, do you have anything you want to add on that? No, I just think the really cool thing is the adaptability of it and the adaptability not just with what, we're doing but with the individual clients and their risk appetite and all sorts of things because I've, I've seen lots of times clients that that have the plan and then like you said things can change there can be all of a sudden a, a loss of a loss of a job change in income you know there's been some unfortunate where there might be a separation and these are the times where the the planners can step back in and look once again at, at the theory of constraints or where are we where are we going to miss what can we do what can we change and then you can completely adapt the plan to still reach the goal with a completely different set of circumstances, which I think is one of the coolest things um, that I've seen the planners do. Yeah, totally. And another point about risk, right? Risk is a relationship between your level of understanding and the environment you're in, right? And so I mentioned, I said a word earlier, unsophisticated, right? And when I said unsophisticated, I didn't want anyone, don't want anyone thinking I mean um, you know, like people that didn't pass great no table manners or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no table manners and, you know, pick your toes at dinner and stuff. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the definition of an unsophisticated market and an unsophisticated investor set. And typically the, the the lack of sophistication isn't based on the individual. It's just based around the impound rate of knowledge, right? And so in sophisticated markets, you tend to find that the knowledge base is higher, 
right? And more sophisticated investors typically have greater access to information and also a great ability to understand that information, which necessarily means they're in a better position to manage risk. And that's the relationship between sophistication and risk. And so if we can give people the access and understanding to better information, then they're able to manage their risk better, right? Because, and this applies, this applies to everything. This is like, because, you know, if some, if you just said to me, hey, dude, do you want to go invest in Broken Hill? I might be like, what? No, I don't want to invest in Broken Hill. But if you came to me with a, a solid thesis and it was like, hey, here's all the inputs. This is what it looks like. Here's the forecast. Here's the this, here's the that. I might actually say, okay, well, now I understand it. Well, okay. Let me. Now, by the way, just to be clear, everyone listening to this, I'm not suggesting anyone go buy a large hill or something like that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, don't buy them. Don't, but we're not, this we're is not, not buying financial advice. <laughs> it's not financial advice. Definitely not. If it, we're not buying a broken hill. I just use it as an example. Don't go buy Paul Humpty Do and Broken Hill uh, next week. We're going to get hate mail from the mayor of Broken Hill. I've never, never even looked at that. Dude, dude, to be honest, either. I'm not sure what it, whether there's many dance studios available there, but I'm sure they'll be snapped up next week. Dudes with facial hair, shit can, regional Australian towns. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Broken Hill or Humpty Doo, but we're not telling you to invest there, just to be clear. Not even in a dance. It's a really good example what what you said, though, because you know I think one of the biggest misses with what we've sort of been talking about quite often and with sophistication and what we mean by sophistication is a lot of people will come and say, developers make money, I'm on property one, I need to do developments to make money. And it's a, it's a great example where you've picked, the, you've picked the input and you're just going to hope that the output is going to be the right thing. And when you're at an earlier level of sophistication, and, and I've seen it happen a few times, especially with small developments and especially when you're doing it lower budgets, they're cash flow hungry, they're capital hungry, they're very risky when you're looking at a risk return. There is high returns when you get them right. But for a first property, so many people can get themselves in such a mischief getting it wrong when they've decided that that input is what is their output because they've seen people at an entirely different stage of their portfolio do it and make money and they automatically think, yeah, that's that's the way to financial freedom. That's the way to my goal. Yeah, I think I think the, the thing you mentioned there, stages of portfolio, that's a really interesting thing as well. And this this also then goes back to the, the sophistication level, like the knowledge level, the knowledge base. Right, and so when most investors are starting, and just kind of emphasising your point there, Sean, when most investors are starting, you don't know what you don't know. It's your first go around. You've never done a property contract before, probably. You're it's scary, it's daunting. You know, like there's all these kind of things. Once you get a couple of properties in, you're like, yeah, 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 okay. We've done the inspections. Yeah, yeah, good. Anything? Yep, cool. No, no worries. Look, you're all sort of all over it, right? And the sophistication level and your understanding of risk because of your exposure. And your access and under- access to better quality information gives you the capability to better understand how you might do things differently or what level of risk you're comfortable with. I've seen that happen with loads of our clients. Yeah, I, I mean, this and Jason, I'd love for you to talk to that as well because I've personally I've know like you know obviously I'm not um, not working with clients directly uh, these days, but when I was, you know, they'd come in first property really kind of unsophisticated and they're like scared and they're nervous and all that kind of stuff. They get a few properties in and they're like, right, okay, so what are we doing now? Should we go buy should we should we go buy a dance studio and Humpty Doo? Like let's let's have at it. You know, and their whole perspective changes because they've developed a higher level of sophistication in the asset class, which necessarily means that they are more comfortable understanding and managing risk. Which because if they understand it's less risky, but Jason, have you got any examples of that you want to bring? Yeah, stacks of examples that we've had on this. So one of our clients is on its seventh property, I think. When we first started buying the the first two properties, there was a lot of constraints placed on our team in terms of specific locations and specific yields and specific purchase prices, just because there was a level of discomfort there because the pro had just been going through the process. But now we've been able to build out that portfolio, and the clients also building out trust. Uh, along that journey and also getting access to better information because of all of the cool stuff that we have access to. And that's opened a, a whole new uh, perspective on, on ways, successful ways to build our portfolios to the point where any property that we present, provided we can validate why we believe that's a good area to invest in, why that's going to be right for that client based on where they're at in their portfolio, uh, we've been able to get minimal friction and build a really successful portfolio. Like I, even from my own example, like before I started working with Dashlot, I bought an off the plan apartment in a high rise which 
I would never do now because I understand why that's wrong. But at that given point in time, I had I didn't have the information or the context to know whether that was a good decision or not. But I was looking within my own within my own backyard. So I think I'm the only one uh, in this room that dodged the scrape with the high rise apartments off the plan. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I've been there, done that too. You know, so. But what's interesting about that, like a really interesting example, because what we're going to be talking about probably in the, uh, the next episode of this miniseries, he's actually investing in apartments. So what's interesting about that is that we can kind of laugh about that, like, oh, off-the-plan apartments. And off-the-plan can work. Yeah, people have right, made as a huge amounts of money with off-the-plan apartments, so don't take that the wrong way either. There's, there's a, like what we said with the thousands of different strategies, there's people that have done arbitrage with off-the-plan apartments and and put 50 under an option contract and made 50 grand on each of them and and off to the races. So we're definitely not not canning any strategy as a whole. So, But it comes down to your ability to understand and sophistication it. Sophistication, right? Knowledge. And your sophistication level. Because if you don't know, if you don't know, if you're just like, okay, yeah, I'm just buying property, man. It's all good. You could be you could be a complete sucker. And you could be like me, who lost a bunch of money. You could be like Jason, who lost a bunch of money, right? Just in the same way that um that like you know, that, that sort of house and land developments and stuff. There are some people who make a packet doing that kind of stuff, but it's really about understanding uh, how do you know, how, how would you know if the specific bit of that uh, development that you're investing in is either in the right release or the right position or the right, you know, there's all these things that you need to know, which again comes down to the sophistication level and also secondarily understanding if that actually fits within the context of your portfolio. Because I like uh, one of our team members who I won't uh, I won't name a name because I'm the permission, but they started working with us a couple of years ago. They joined the Dashlot team a couple of years ago. At that time, they'd started a development, and um, it was sort of like um, it was around COVID time, so all the supply issues came into play. And this development, which was supposed to be completed, all of a sudden was getting delayed by two and a half years, and this and that and the other. And they were sort of saying to me, like, what do I do? Like, do I finish? Do I wait two and a half? Because they couldn't buy another property. Well, they, they had all their capital tied up and all of this kind of stuff. And so they were like sitting there going, we've tried to do this thing. And so they've got this huge capital risk because all of a sudden you've got the opportunity cost. And I was like, well, you could have bought like five other properties. You could have bought freaking six properties or something in that period of time that are waiting for that one development to finish. Um, but again, that kind of goes back to the sophistication and understanding and also understanding where it fits in the portfolio so that you don't, hit one of those critical constraints. And the risk-return ratio as well, I guess, because for somebody that did, like like Jason's example before of our client on seven or eight properties, throwing something like that in there that is inherently risky but might have a higher return ratio is totally fine because you might have offset it. You might have four or five assets up the top of the curve which are, are perfectly offsetting that risk. But if you're somebody that's got all your eggs in one basket and and you're, you're jumping all the way down the, the sort of lower end of that risk-return ratio and you've got nothing else to offset it, then it definitely might not be the right the right move for you. Yeah, and I'm just going to end on the. I'm going to read it. I'm going to reiterate this point on risk, right? It's very easy for people to think like something like, uh, well, okay, so I don't want to have too much risk in my portfolio at the start. So therefore, what I'll do is I'll go buy uh, something within the within a ten kilometer radius of the Melbourne or Sydney CBD because that's low risk. Incorrect, isn't? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Well, number one, those markets are typically quite volatile, and you can you could actually you, you could buy the wrong time, and that market could, could go down massively, and you could find yourself massively underwater. But also, number two, you could get yourself stuck, which is the biggest possible risk. The biggest possible risk that you could ever face in your life is to live an unfulfilled life. And when I mean unfulfilled, I mean unfulfilled of your dreams, not achieving all your goals, not becoming the best version of yourself, not self-actualizing, not achieving everything you want to achieve and being all you can be. That's the biggest risk. Like, imagine that. Imagine like. That is my single biggest fear is to get to the end of my life and realize that I didn't actually achieve or live, sorry, let me rephrase that, live the best version of my life. And this is what we want to try and help people to, to avoid. So just when you're thinking about risk, there's a lot of considerations to take into it. And what we do want to try and do is find the best risk adjusted return, right? Because there's plenty of ways to make money. But it's like, how do you balance the risk in such a way that it's optimized for your specific goals and outcomes? Before we wrap things up, Jason or Sean, do you have anything else you want to add on this? No, a lot of, lot of no. heavy-duty economical terms, all the rest of it. So I hope, I hope it was useful. I think I love yeah, this episode. I think, I think it was uh, good. Jason, would you, do you like it? What's yeah, your rating? It's perfect. My rating, I think it's a, definitely it's a really, <laughs> really interesting subject matter and we're able to lead it 
own life client experiences as well. So you'll be able to add a lot of value and help change uh, the perspectives of some of the listeners just to have more things to think about when when building out their portfolios. So I think it's really nice. His key takeaways, Broken Hill, Humpty Doo, Dance Studios. <laughs> so the the importance of this episode is that it's setting us up with the context for the next few episodes. And so if you're listening to this going, yeah, okay, this is cool. But actually, this is important to understand because what we're actually going to be talking about in the next few episodes, as I mentioned at the start, things are changing. You know, we're changing, we're evolving, we're growing, we're working out how to how to serve our clients better. And so over the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking about specifically different asset types. In fact, the next episode that we're going to be doing is going to be specifically talking about investing in units and apartments and how to do that effectively in your portfolio so that you can actually maximize your capability to get to your goals faster and with less risk. After that, we're probably going to talk about capital city markets and semi-metros. I'm going to be digging into heaps more stuff. So this is a great foundation episode for understanding how to think about your portfolio as a macro. Then we're going to be going into some of the detail around you can think about different specific asset types in there as well. So if you've enjoyed this episode, let us know. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you drop a comment, make sure you subscribe, do all of that kind of stuff. Anywhere you watch that, make sure you hit the subscribe button or the like button or do something else. But actually, the thing that I would love for you to do most, there's so much gold in this episode and there are so many investors out there who don't have access to this information. And so if you could help me serve our mission and spread the word and help get this to somebody else who needs it, that would be the biggest favor that I could ask. Click the share button, get the copy, copy the link, think of someone that you know who would benefit from this information and send it to them and say, check this out, I think you'd like it. That'd be the biggest gift that you could give us in return for all the information we've been able to give you. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Let us know. Can't wait to see you on the next one. And until then, we'll see you soon.